Years ago, in Vista, we had a retreat, and our theme was living letters. And we took the scripture from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 through 5, which says, clearly, you are a letter from Christ, showing the result of our ministry. This letter is not written with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is not carved on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of all this because of our trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Isn't that great? So we called it living letters. But here's the issue. We had the most adorable wooden name, name tags that look like letters. So it would say like Cheryl Broderson, address living letters. And then it was supposed to say 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through 5. And then the return address was Jesus in our hearts, also in heaven, zip code 777777. And then like some had the the stamp, and it had the Calvary dove that kind of looks like Texas, and others had the cross, which looks like a cross, and we had both of those as the stamp, but the problem was the woman who had made the name tags got the scripture wrong, and the reference that she put was the letter kills. (laughs) Of all the mistakes and wrong scriptures you could do for living letters, But it was that the letter of the law kills. And so we asked her, would you please change it? She said, I'm not changing it. We have over, you know, 350 people at this retreat. You expect me to change all of these name tags? And we're like, okay. So my friend just grabs me. We go in a room and we start praying. We pray for her heart. We pray for the women not to look up the reference. You know, we (laughs) pray, you know, God bless us. We don't want to die. And so we're praying this. And we walk out, and there she is, and she's got white out in one hand and a Sharpie pin, and she's changing. She's like, next, next, and she's doing every tag. And we're like, what happened? She said, the spirit of grace happened. (laughs) But God wants to make you a grace story. He wants to make your life a grace story. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David writes and says, You already wrote my story. When you created me, you were already writing my story. God wants to write your story as a grace story. The Bible is filled with one grace story after another. And every story is meant to point us to the ultimate grace displayed through the champion of grace on the cross of grace where he spilled the blood of grace that he might cover us in grace and bless us with God's grace. It's a grace story from cover to cover, beginning with the gracious creation of God and his blessing saying, it is good. Beginning with his grace for Adam and Eve when they fell and in Genesis chapter 3, saying he was going to send a Messiah, the seed of Eve, that would bruise the serpent's head. And in doing so, his own heel would be bruised. 
It's a grace story when Cain killed Abel and says, the punishment is too much for me. And God says, all right, I'll put a mark of grace on you that if anyone touches Cain, their life will be required. It's a grace story when the flood came, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a grace story when men began to repopulate the earth and God chose Abraham. Abraham's story is a life of grace. Isaac, his son's story, is a life of grace. And so it continues. One grace story after another. What you notice when you read the Bible is like everyone is flawed but Jesus. Everyone, except for maybe Daniel, but he was a eunuch. Everyone is flawed. Everyone's got some kind of issue in their life. But it's from these flawed people that God calls, loves on them, and qualifies them by his grace. Now, every great story has five essential elements. The first is a protagonist. We used to call that in my day a main character. But so many things have changed since my day. I mean, we have things like text used to be a noun, and now it can be a verb. There used to be, like, if you tried and scrabbled to put texting, it would be like, no, we don't accept this. Now you can put text, and they're like, oh, yeah, texting. Yes, yeah, sure, texted. All those things. I lived in Texas. No. <laughs> but you've got a main character, a protagonist. Then you have an antagonist, someone who is against and working against the hero. Then you have an initiating action, something that moves the story, maybe an objective that the protagonist or main character wants to get to, or something that happens that sets the main character in motion or gets them on the right path. Then you have a conflict. There will be obstacles to the objective. There will be um, problems and issues and articles that work to against our character getting to resolution, which is the last element, resolution. When the hero gets to victory, when the hero overcomes, when the hero meets the objective. Those are the five elements of a good story. You find those five elements in Zerubbabel's story that we were reading just a bit about in Zechariah. Zerubbabel's story is also told in Ezra. Here is a descendant of King David, but he's not recognized as a king, um, He's not given the scepter of David. But what he is given is 49,000 people who have lived a city life, who know nothing about desert dwellings or hardship, to go across 900 miles, a perilous journey with a huge crowd, back to repopulate the land of Israel to resettle in Jerusalem, to build up the places that have been devastated and ruined and set in 70 years of neglect. So here you've got Zerubbabel. He's got this daunting mission ahead of him. But he gathers these 49,000. They trek the 900 miles. 
only to come back and find this situation is much worse than they thought. Much worse. I love those um, fixer-upper shows, right? You know how, like, Chip and Joanna, they're really excited, but they always find a problem with the house, and it's like, yo, Chip, you call them. No, Joanna, you call them. And somebody's got to call them and tell them it's going to be, you know, $10 billion more to fix the house they want. I was just watching um, a show that took place in England where this couple bought this house in York, and they were really excited because they got it for such a good price, and they had set 40,000 pounds aside to fix up the house, and it ended up taking them, they thought they'd be in it in four months, it took them 17 months, and it cost almost double that when they finally got to move in, and, you know, all the work, and he had to do it himself with just very little um, hiring out, and just how difficult it was. You know, they got this house, and until they began to tear down the walls, they didn't realize how cumbersome, how great the object that they had taken on was. But of course, at the end of the program, they're living in the house, and they're asked, was it worth it? And they all say, it was. (laughs) But if we were asked to do it again, we wouldn't. Don't you feel like that about a lot of areas of your life? Like, yes, it's worth it to be where I am now, but if you ask me, do you want to do it again? I'd say no. I remember my one son, my youngest son, he was asking me, how, how did I get out of your stomach? And I have to say, I was really relieved that he was my C-section. <laughs> the others were natural birth, and somehow they never asked, but he asked. So I said, well, you know, they had to cut me open. They had to, you know, I don't know why I'm so graphic. They had to pull out my uterus. They had to open it up. They brought you out. And he looks at me and goes, yep, I never want to do that again. I don't blame him. But you, you have Zerubbabel coming back to Jerusalem, and it's much worse than he thought. Because he, I don't think he realized how large the stones were that had been all taken down. Some of these stones, which are still in Israel, weigh 9,000 pounds. Now, when Solomon built the temple, he had over 150,000 workers. 150, and they had all sorts of contraptions to get those stones into place. Not only did he have 150,000 workers, even with 150,000 workers, he also had gold and silver and bronze and cedars of Lebanon in abundance. He had his dad's bank account. He had all these resources. He had an architect. I mean, he had professional builders that were putting this together. They were trained. It was a workforce. And they had no opposition. No opposition. There was no one saying, hey, hey, don't do that. I mean, everyone was cooperating with the building of God's temple. It was an amazing feat, but it took them seven years. Seven years with over 150,000 men and all the gold, all the silver, all the supplies right there. And it took them over seven years years. It was Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he said, this has been a daunting task. 
Because how do you build a temple for the King of kings and Lord of lords when even heaven itself cannot contain him? And earth is only his footstool. How do you build something glorious enough for God? Just a few weeks ago, I don't know what possessed me, but I had told my granddaughter how I had made a bell costume for her Aunt Kelsey. And from then on, that's all she wanted for her birthday. And I would say, no, I could buy you one on Amazon. It's cheap. You'll love it. It's better than anything Grandma could do. Nope, Grandma. You said. You said. So I said to Brian, how do I get out of this? He goes, you don't. You said. You said. My sewing machine has, like, dust. I mean, it like, I don't even have the spray oxygen. I'm like, <laughs> seriously, trying to get, you know, the little dust bunnies out from where you put the bobbin in. And I'm... I'm just pulling that thing out. I'm, 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 I'm doing practice. I, I go to the fabric store. I, I buy this fabric, and I'm, I'm trying to make it. I, am, I have never been so intimidated in my life as when I am sewing a bell costume for my granddaughter because she's a little bit picky. She's a little bit temperamental. And if it itches, she'll be like, it itches, it itches, it itches. So I am totally, like, intimidated. You know, I send it up there. I, like, pray over the package before I mail it. I send her two Amazon costumes beforehand just in case it's not good enough. Not one, but two. One that comes with the gloves. And, you know, they're, like, what, 29 bucks? It's, like, it's worth it. The crown, everything. And then just like, oh, God, give me favor. Please give me favor. Give them grace for this costume. So her father writes me, my son, it's wonderful. We love it. My daughter-in-law says, it's going to be a treasure forever. And I'm like, yeah, that's what adults say. <laughs> I don't even know what the five-year-old wants to say about it. And, you know, and then they send me photos where she's in it. And I'm looking at it going, it's a little big doesn't fit like I hoped. You know, I was like trying to finish every scene, but it had been so long since I've sewn. And those who sew clothes know that there's a difference between sewing quilts and, sew- and sewing clothes. Clothes is very exacting. I mean, you got to make those little triangles meet on all the edges and you're set in sleeves and, oh, it's done. It's finished. It's there. I'd burn it if I were them, but nevertheless... This is just a tidbit of what Zerubbabel must have felt like, right? I mean, he's not going up against Amazon. He's going up against Solomon and these professionals. And what what does he have to work with? Well, he has no resources. In Haggai, the Lord says, go up into the mountains and get all the resources. Get the wood and the timber up in the mountains and use the old rocks. He's also got these piles of of trash and neglect. So you know how when things like, for instance, let's say your costume jewelry in your jewelry box, what happens when you just leave it? Somehow they get entangled with one another. It's not like you're shaking your jewelry box, like, let's see what happens. Just put it in there. And when you pull it out, they're like all connected, like a barrel of monkeys. Like, how did that happen? It's neglect. 70 years of neglect in these stones. You're like, no, we're friends. You're not, you're not separating us. You know, there, there are vines growing over it. There are scorpions inside and snakes that have made their little nests. That's very common in Israel. And so all of this neglect 
and they have to pull apart these stones and they have to just clear a place. At one part, one time, they come to Ezra and they said, the, the men are so tired. They've been working and working and they're tired of building. But not only that, but you've got these, we're told that the type of men that, that he had to work with, we're told in Nehemiah when they're doing the walls, they had perfumers. Oh yeah, they're good at building. <laughs> Goldsmiths. Oh, we're just used to making jewelry. Goldsmiths. And um, then you've got the men of Tekoa that said, oh no, we're not doing that. We're, we've, we've lived as nobles. And it said that they wouldn't put their backs into the work. So you've got the uncooperative and you've got the cooperative that have no idea what they're doing. You don't have experienced craftsmen. You don't have experienced builders. It's like having my husband come and put in a garage door opener for you. Don't do it. It's like that. And not only that, but he's got opposition. There, the opposition is, is scheming opposition. First, they act like, we want to join you. But they want to join them in order to sabotage the work. They write letters against them. They slander them. They try to discourage them in the work. They taunt them. They do everything they can to keep these Israelites from rebuilding the temple. And then the Israelites themselves. When Zerubbabel finally does lay the foundation of the temple, the people begin to cry. The priests, the religious, those who are the leaders, they're crying like, it's just not as good. I just missed the old temple, but I don't really like this temple. Solomon was so much better than Brian Broderson, and I just missed Chuck so much. Oh, sorry. That was my grace story as if I don't too. But you know, there's those who are crying. Like, oh, it's never going to be as good. and It's never going to be in the glory. And the old days and the best days are past. And all that's before us is just look at this thing. It's so humble. So ridiculously humble. And God comes by, the, by Hezekiah and he says, because you haven't been willing to put any effort into this temple, this is why you never are able to save money. You get money, but it's like putting it into pockets with holes. This is why you're always cold. You put on clothes and you're never warm enough because you don't care about the temple of God. You don't care about God's church. You want to enhance and fix up your house, but you'll let the house of God be neglected. And therefore, you have all this frustration in your life. Consider your ways and go and build. God had to rebuke these people. God had to speak to them through the prophets because they didn't want to build. They thought it will never be as good as it was before. Why bother? And those are the people Zerubbabel had to work with, and it was daunting. And then the prophet Zechariah comes to Zerubbabel, and he says, Zerubbabel, don't worry. Because it's not going to be might, 150,000 force. It's not going to be power. But it's going to be by the Spirit of God. God's going to clear away all this rubble and make the way clear before you. And God is going to build this temple. And when you put the capstone on top of it, you're going to look at it and you're going to say, it was by God's grace, grace, grace. And everyone will know 
that God has spoken. Because the eyes of the Lord are always looking for those who will take God at his word. And God loves to see the plumb line. You just step into the grace story. God rejoices when you give God the pen and say, all right, write the grace story. Write the grace story. God promises that this accomplishment will be by grace, through grace, and for the glory of his grace. It will showcase. Everyone will look at the new temple and say, that's what God's grace can do. And it will inspire others to God's grace. And everyone will praise and acknowledge the goodness of God's grace. Now, God wants to write your story. But there are certain things that threaten your story. Even as there was opposition and those that were aggressively seeking to destroy the grace story of the temple and of Zerubbabel, there are seven landmines that threaten your story. And they're mentioned in the book, but I want to go through them very quickly. The first one is legalism. Legalism. Let me read Galatians 5.4 from the NLT. You have become estranged from Christ. You who, I'm sorry, let me read it from the New King James Version. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Legalism is not just a step down or a step away, but a long downward free fall, painful fall from grace. It's, as, it's removing yourself and you are, you are not only stepping away, but it is a dangerous pitfall. It is a dangerous precipice that you might never be able to climb out of when you start legalism. When you go back under the law of, oh, I need to do this, and I shouldn't do this, and I need to do this. You see, these Judaizers had come into the Galatians. Now, the Galatians had been saved. Paul had gone there. He had evangelized Galatia. They had gotten saved. God worked in extraordinary ways in the region of Galatia by the Spirit of God. And then these Judaizers came in, and they said, oh, are you really saved? Is God's word enough? Really, I don't know about grace. What are you doing? Are you obeying the law? Are you circumcised? And started putting all sorts of rules and regulations on these people. And the result was, Paul said, look at your lives now. Were you better off when you just had God's word and grace, the gospel? Or now that you've got these Judaizers who just want to bring you under their authority so they can rule over you and direct your lives and tell you what to do and what not to do? Before I emancipated you to God and to his grace. But now you have fallen from grace. And the result, he said, you're biting, you're devouring. Last week we talked about the condemnation, the competition, the criticism that all comes with the package of legalism. Because legalism, how many laws have you kept this week? I've kept 10. You know, how long did you keep them? For a good 10 seconds. How about you? You know, 
It's too much. And then we get the credit, but we also have the burden. We also have the condemnation. It is going back to rules. The law has no power. In Colossians, Paul talks about these rules and regulations that have no power to keep us from the indulgences of the flesh. I told this story in the book about when I was at Westmont College, I had gained a a tremendous amount of weight and I wanted to diet and lose weight. So I wrote down all these diet scriptures that I could find. And there really are no diet scriptures in the Bible. Just let me be clear. Everything is, you know, fatness, fatness, you know, enjoy the fatness of the Lord, you know. But I really searched hard. I kind of took them out of context. And I wrote them in the old King James because it sounded more judicious. Put a knife to thy throat if thou be a man given to excess. Yeah. Put it up. And I, I found about three or four. And I, I, and I put, like, daggers around them and skulls. And you know, this is before those were even in. And put them up on my wall because this is, like, 1978. Because I was determined I was going to lose weight. And when I would overeat, I would say, you stupid, stupid, you know, ugly, filthy. I would call myself every name in the book and just condemn myself. And so what would I do then? Eat more. Because my idea was, you know, eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we diet. And so I kept living by that slogan. So I would eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow I would diet, and then the next day I would blow it, so I would eat, drink, and be married. You know, because we live like today is the last day of our lives that we get to eat what we want. And then the next day we blow the diet, well, this is the last day that I get to eat everything I want. And so we keep having those last days until we are the last day. You know, we just keep doing this. It didn't help. It didn't stop my indulgences. It didn't stop my cravings. It, it didn't stop anything in me. I was trying the law, and I realized it did not have any power over my appetite. I, I went bulimic. Uh, so did just about everybody on my floor. We would go in the bathroom. We would be crying. We'd be forcing ourselves to throw up. We took laxatives to purge ourselves. And it never, not one thing worked. It was terrible. And you would go in our dorm, and you would hear girls crying, and it smelled like you know what, and it was not pleasant. That was my freshman year. That was my dormitory. That was the law. And it was awful. It was awful. I mean, it took me years to... um, lose that type of mentality and it was grace it was grace that straightened my warped thinking it was grace and then for years I still have um, unfortunately I still have digestive problems due to those years at um, what I did to my body my freshman year the law is not your friend The law is your condemnation. The law can only tell you what you're doing wrong, but it can't tell you how to do it right, nor can it give you the power to do it right. That's the law. The next one is exploiting grace. And I think we all understand what exploiting grace is. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then Jude 4 says this, For certain men have crept in and 
unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, it's my writing. It's hard to read. The NLT says this, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are people who will call themselves Christians, but they do not live under the authority of God's word or under the authority of Jesus Christ. You see what grace does? Grace brings us under the authority of Jesus, not under the authority of the law or do's and don'ts, but under the authority and mastery of Jesus so that the spirit begins to work the work of grace in us. We do the, the works of the law, but not by effort but by the spirit of the living God working in and through us. So one of the landmines to grace that will blow up your story is legalism. When we try to go under the law, do this, don't do this, do this. You know, I had a friend of mine, and she's very sweet, but she'd say, I realize I have a temper. So now I'm counting to 10 every time I want to get angry. And then I just like try to think really great thoughts and, you know, and then try to just buckle my mouth and throw away the key. And I'm like, and how is that working for you? Well, any day now, it's going to work. I just keep doing it. But we all know what those resolutions and those attempts do. So one is legalism. Secondly, it's this licentiousness. Uh, these people that say that because of grace, you can just sin or live anywhere you, way you want. That's not grace. Grace is coming under the authority of God's word and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, trying to merit or obligate God to you by works. Romans eleven six. And since it is through God's kindness, this is NLT, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. There are those that try to put God in their debt. I think about Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus talks about that Pharisee who said, Lord, (laughs) in prayer, can you imagine? I thank you that I'm better than other men because I fast every week. I give a tithe of all I have. I'm considerate to the poor. Not like that guy over in the corner, that sinner. I I know you're going to answer my prayer. Jesus said that man went away unjustified. He didn't get anything he asked for. But the sinner in the corner that just struck his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that man was justified. That man was heard. That man's prayers were answered. There are those who fast to obligate God to themselves. They say, oh, if I fast, then God has to do what I'm asking. I know people who do that who think that they can obligate God to them. Well, I fasted, and you talk to them, why did God do that? I fasted, I read my Bible, I prayed, and God didn't do what I said. Why should I serve him? Why should I walk with him? I want my way. Why are you doing those things? Because you want to force God to do it your way. I say this because I've done this. 
We're all guilty, right? Can we just be a bunch of sinners who need grace? We try to obligate God to us. You can't obligate God to you. You owe him everything. Even the breath that you breathe, you owe to God. We are here by God's grace to be recipients of his grace, to live by his grace so he can write the grace story. But the minute you try to obligate God by ritual or by works, the minute you're reading your Bible to obligate God instead of to grow closer to God, you're in a dangerous, precarious place. The minute you're fasting not to be directed by God and receive the empowerment of God, but so that God has to answer your prayer and do what you're asking instead of accomplish his will, Isaiah 58, you're in a precarious, dangerous place. The minute you make prayer about how much you pray or the methodology you use in prayer, you're in a precarious place. You know, we want these recipes, don't we? We want a recipe. Give me a recipe that I can make, and I'll get the best devil's food cake. Angel food cake is what we want, but we end up with devil's food cake. We, we want to have a recipe so everything goes what? Our way. So we can gratify our taste. God wants us to live by his grace and taste his grace. Landmine number four not using God's grace, or as Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6.1, receiving God's grace in vain. You know, you can have bucketfuls of God's grace. It's all available to you. I never utilize it. The Ephesians, they were living as paupers. And Paul begins Ephesians chapter 1 telling them about all the riches, all the benefits that they have in Christ. You know what it's like? It's like going on one of those all-inclusive vacations, which I've yet to do, but going on one of those all-inclusive vacations and taking a sack lunch with you and not using any of the amenities and staying in a tent on the grounds. You know, when you've got the room, you've got all your meals are included, and you can, you know, go to the pool and everything, and to live outside of that with your little lunch sack and think that that blesses God, you're wrong. Paul told us that God has given all these things freely to enjoy. You know, God wants you to enjoy. One of the worst things for me, I love to cook, is when people come to my house and they've already eaten. I invite them for dinner, and they're like, oh, we already ate. It's like, then why did you come? (laughs) You know, I want them to try my food. I want them to enjoy the same sensations that Brian and I are about to enjoy at the same time so we can all just look at each other and go, mmm, at the same time, mmm, yummy. But when people aren't hungry or they're like, oh, no, that's okay. It's like, no, it's not okay. I want you to eat this now because I made it. It's delicious. And that's what we do sometimes with grace. We use all these other things, so we come in, and we're like, oh, I don't have an appetite. Uh, I'm just going to just, you know, I had my little snacks before. And God wants all these grace. See, we don't utilize grace. We're not enjoying grace. 
that God has given us. You know, I know people that like they apologize for their house. Sorry, I have a nice house. Sorry about my nice couch. Sorry about the car that actually runs. You know, I should probably just be using a bicycle with a flat tire. That's not God's will. You know, I'm I'm not teaching prosperity, but we have a God that blesses us in unexpected ways. I have a friend. They called me up. They said, we want you to use our BMW. It was like nine years old. I don't care. It's a BMW. Got in it, loved it. He said, I just don't want to see you cruising down South Coast, I mean, um, see you cruising down Pacific Coast Highway with the sunroof open, just saying, you know, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. But anyway, I get this, I get this, this car. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It was like a Batmobile, had all these secret things. And then after a month of using it, they're like, the Lord put it on our heart, you're to have it. And I'm like, ooh, do I park in the very back where nobody can see it? Or do I say, sorry, God blessed me, and I'm so thankful. I think we need to say, I'm so thankful for this blessing. I've got four children. I'm so thankful. Instead of saying, yeah, I know my oldest is walking with the Lord, but you know, she can be mean at times. No, she can't. She's super sweet. She's awesome. I got her. I'm blessed. You know, we need to. I remember people used to come to me with marriage problems. I felt like I had to apologize for Brian. I'm sorry he's nice. (laughs) Sorry I got a good one. You got a bad one. Sorry he's godly. You know, sorry, you know. No, we should say, my God, give me a good one. You want a good one? I'll show you where the pond is. <laughs> God has given these things to enjoy. Enjoy a good meal from Jesus and say, wow, Lord, thank you for this great tasting food. God, thank you for this apartment. Thank you for this couch. Thank you that I get to live in Orange County. Thank you for this rain. Thank you for this chair. Thank you that my hands are working. Thank you for my toes. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for for a hairdresser that covers my gray. Thank you, Lord. Instead of apologizing and receiving the grace of God in vain, like I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to enjoy that. I'm going to live a totally, you know, impoverished life for God. That's not what he's asking for. That's not what he's requiring. I read of a, a woman, Madame Guillaume, some people say, but it's Guillaume, and she used to put rocks in her shoes because she didn't want any step to be comfortable. That is not our God. That is not our God. He alone took the cross that we might receive the riches of his grace. So do not receive the grace of God in vain. Part of receiving the grace of God in vain is to do for God rather than to do by God through grace. And we're always trying to do it like I'm going to do it for God, you know, and then I'm going to present it to you as a present. Mm -mm. Do it by God. Do it with God and through God. There's a story that was told years ago. It's a true story, but a, a father was so excited to have his daughter home from college Um, His wife had died, and now this was just going to be his daughter and himself, and he was so looking forward to this time. He thought it would be healing, and they would talk about um, the mom and how much they loved her, and he was just looking forward to it. But his daughter came home, and she would go in the room and shut the door and shut him out, and she spent the whole time just alone in that room. And he wanted to fellowship, and he wanted to just spend time with her. It was at Christmas, and so... 
when Christmas Day arrived, she came out of the room. She had a wrap package for him. She put it under the tree. He opened it, and she had been spending all that time knitting socks for him in her room. And he said, as much as I love those socks, I would have rather had her fellowship and her time and her conversation. You know, sometimes we're closing the door and we're knitting socks for God, and he really doesn't need them. He can go get them at Walmart. (laughs) What he wants is our fellowship, our conversation, our burdens, our time, even our hurts. Do not receive the grace of God. We then, as workers together with him, plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't ignore it. God's grace makes our stories unique, powerful, and page-turners. We need the grace of God. The grace of God pushes us in places we wouldn't usually go. It, it threatens our comforts and our confines. But it makes for the best story. Count on God's grace. Ask for God's grace. Enjoy God's grace. Number five, insulting the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.29 This is when we choose the law over grace. Some people purposely do this. They purposely choose the law because they feel more comfortable with the law. They want to live with rules and regulations, and they like that. They're afraid of the grace of God that they'll, you know, go wild with the grace of God. And so because of that, they, they, they count the grace of, of Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, a common thing, or not enough. Not enough. I need to help God out. I need to add to this. A common thing. And God calls that an insult to the spirit of grace. When you say the grace of God is not enough to save, equip, qualify, and empower me or someone else. When I put extra qualifications on somebody and say, well, but do you do this or do you do that? When I'm adding extra biblical things, I am insulting the spirit of grace. When someone says, are you saved? I say, absolutely, by the blood of Jesus Christ, because I believe that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses a man from every sin, and there's nothing I can add to that, but I can receive it. I can believe it, I can stand in it, and I can enjoy it. Next, six, bitterness. I want to get through these landmines because I don't really like them. Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 16. It's bitterness. Bitterness is a product of unforgiveness. It's when unforgiveness goes into the heart and it festers. And it's allowed to take root And we're told that bitterness goes in and it's like a weed that puts its roots down deep. And then by the time you see it spring up, there's already a root system. And it has to be. It has to be pulled out. Because there's something I've noticed about weeds. They spread. They spread so fast, so easily. I, my dog, you know, I've talked about Barnabas before. He's a golden doodle. He's black. But what you don't know about him is he's got Velcro for fur. And when we go walking in fields or everything, we come home and he's covered in not just burrs, but those sticky seeds and everything. And I have to take a good 10 minutes just pulling everything out and brushing his coat. And I do this before I even let him out in the yard because I don't want those seeds going into my yard. 
and creating all sorts of weeds. So I have to brush them out and throw those in the trash and get rid of them. You see, as we walk through life, we're going to pick up burrs and we're going to pick up seeds that are unforgiveness and grudges. And if we allow them to get into the soil of our heart, we'll have a root of bitterness. What weeds do too, if you've noticed, they take over, they kill the grass. They take over the grass. They take over the um, vegetable garden. They take over everything. And that's what will happen if we allow unforgiveness. It turns into bitterness and it takes over the garden of our heart. I was just reading and I told you this uh, either last week or the week before, the week before that. I'm not quite sure, but one of those weeks I definitely told you. Matthew 12:34, and I think I told you it was Luke 12:34, but it's Matthew 12:34. I was corrected today as I read Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4. But it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you heart has bitterness in it, you will speak bitter words. It will just come out. We, we have this little thing in here. Do I have bitterness? Do I have a negative reaction in my heart when I hear a certain name mentioned? Grr. Do I feel the need to share my cause against this person with others? Do I endeavor to win people to my side against this person? Am I constantly curious about this person's activity so I follow them on Facebook? Whoops. Do I constantly belittle and look to find fault with this person's accomplishment or actions? Do I feel the need to talk about this person's past failings or what they did to me? Do I enjoy hearing about this person's faults? Do I feel gratified when this person fails? Do I incessantly repeat the same story about this person to others? If this is true, if any of these hit the mark, there's bitterness. Or maybe the seed is just on the surface, or it's just beginning to take root. Pull it out. Pull it out. Because this is what, this is what Hebrew says. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. If we allow bitterness, it's not just our own. It spreads to others. It, it ruins their grace story as well. There's shrapnel. And it doesn't just spoil our grace story. It hurts others' grace story. In Matthew 7, 1 through 2, Jesus said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. For with the standard that you use against others, it will be used on you. I want to make sure that my standard is so merciful. Because that's the standard that God will use with me. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Do to others what you want them to do to you. Do you want others to be kind and gracious to you? then be super gracious to them, exceedingly gracious to them. I think about that often in my marriage. How much grace do I want Brian showing to me? Tons, tons and tons and tons. You know, um, I've told this story before, but when we lived in England, I went to drive and I hit a post in the front of our yard and I put about an 18-inch deep groove in the side of the car. And when Brian came home, and I showed it to him, and I was so upset. I was crying. 
Um, we had a bank account in the United States. We had to pull from that, and we were able to get it fixed. He was so kind, and he was so gracious to me. I mean, unbelievably gracious, and I thought, I'm putting this on his account. When he does something, I'm going to just give him so much grace. The next week, he backed into somebody else's post and knocked it down completely. And it was the same amount of money to fix their post and the back of our car as it was to fix mine. And I remember when he told me, I was like, hallelujah, we're both grace people, you know, like we belong together, recipients of grace. I think that's what Peter means when he says, you know, husband and wives to be heirs together of the grace of God, you know, I'll give you grace, you give me back grace, I give you more grace, you give me back grace. There is something wonderful when we are just splashing each other in grace. So we do not want bitterness to rob us, to, to make us fall short of that grace. And, and he says, fall short of the grace of God. We don't want anything to make us fall short of the grace of God, to leave us in legalism. We don't want that bitterness. We want to enjoy grace so much in our heart. We want to be filled with grace and be recipients of grace and know all the glory of grace so that our story has a grace resolution, so that we get the victory, we get the thing built. And when we do, we go grace, grace to it, finally. Number seven, we don't want to try life without grace. And Exodus 33 is what I used for this example. And that's when the children of Israel, they didn't want to go into the promised land. And so they drew back. And then when they realized all that they lost, they preemptively and um, presumptuously tried to go back and claim the promised land. And Moses said, you can't do it because God is not with you in this. There are times when I know that I do not have the grace of God for a certain situation. Maybe it's um, a mean person comes up and they're yelling at me and I'm thinking, I want to yell back. In fact, I want to take them down right now. That shows you that you need grace. And if the grace isn't there, like if it doesn't come in like a flood, like, oh, I love you, then go. Turn around and leave. That's not your battle. That's not a place you belong in. I think sometimes we're fighting battles that God hasn't called us to. And when we preemptively and presumptuously uh, fight where we're not called, we're, gonna, we're going to not feel the grace and not have the grace. We need to go back to a grace place. If you feel like you've lost the grace, but you remember a time when you had grace, go back to that grace place. Find that grace. Make it back to the throne room of God again. Get that fill-up of grace again. When I don't have the divine equipping, the divine peace, the divine words, or feel God's divine presence, I remove myself to a grace place. I realize I'm not supposed to counsel this person. I might not be supposed to talk to this person. I might not even supposed to be at this house or this place right now, and I remove myself. I think we've all had situations like that where you're like, I'm not supposed to be here. Years ago, when Brian, um, so when I met Brian, he was a plumber, and he was making really good money, and there were only three people who worked at this plumbing company, and we were at a Bible study, and we were 
seeking um, to pray in the Spirit and receive the gifts of the Spirit. And there was a, a young man there who had like this gift of prophecy. And he put his hands on Brian and he said, Lord, I pray that Brian would lose his job so he'd go into the ministry. I was really mad because this was two weeks before we were getting married. And Brian was making really good money and could totally support me. And so I really liked this job. And Brian, Brian, I was in the car and I'm complaining, how dare you pray like that? That is so wrong. You know, what does he think he's doing? And Brian goes, don't worry, Cheryl, I'll never lose this job. There's just three of us. We are backlogged for two years. He used to do remodels for Newport Beach and Corona Del Mar homes and, you know, good money, you know? And so I was, he's like, don't worry about this. Three days later, he's so excited, he almost skips into my parents' house. I'm like, what? He goes, I lost my job. I said, what? You said you couldn't. He said, no, he's closing down the company. He, he doesn't want to do this anymore. Just something came over him. He's moving to Hawaii. And he, he gave all our jobs to another company, and they don't need us. And he said I could get a job with this, um, this other company. They pay, they'll pay me the same thing. I've got a more um, opportunity for raises. But it's repair plumbing. And I'm like, okay. That means you're going to come home and need a shower. But that's okay. I can deal with this. And so... He goes, and the guy says, I want to give you the job. And Brian says, he's shaking while he's talking to this guy. And the guy goes, do you want the job? And Brian says, yes, but God doesn't want me to have it. I have no peace. I don't even think I should be here. The guy looks at him and goes, then get out of here. (laughs) Brian left. He went and got a job working at a surf shop managing it, which was not enough money for both of us. I had to go back to work. I needed more grace. But God did incredible things. But what I'm saying is when you don't have the grace, it could be that this is not the place for you to be in. And I just want to say that to you because sometimes we're so busy doing for God, like we're going to, we take on things that he hasn't called us to. The worst is a Sunday school teacher, someone who's teaching Sunday school who's not called to children. Shut up. Shut up. You little brats. They're not called. That's a sure sign that they're not called. They don't have the grace for it. But there are people who think they're pleasing God in a ministry where they don't belong. You know, it's, it's about the call. We could talk a year about that, but I want to get to my last point, that God wants to write you a grace story. You are the protagonist, and you have an enemy. His name is Satan, the devil, and he's strewn landmines. You have an inciting action in your life because grace puts your story in motion. And grace is God's will for your life. It's God's objective for your life, and it is meant to move your story along. There will be conflict. As a friend of mine said, God always builds the drama. And that's what we see throughout the Word of God. It's not enough that they've got to cross a Red Sea. They've got to have the Egyptians' army coming after them and be stuck between two mountains with a sea in front of them. God always builds the drama. Because what is a story without drama, right? What's a story without drama? I'll tell you what it is. Boring. (laughs) God doesn't want to give you a boring story, my friends, my sisters. No boring stories here. But the resolution is God's victory. It's God's temple erected in your heart, in your life, in your home, in your situation. 
with shouts of grace, grace to it. The end of every grace story is the shout of grace. God did it. God did it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't work hard for it. I just let the spirit of God's grace work through me. And I have done what I never thought was possible. God has worked. He's removed the boulders. He's laid the foundation. He's built the walls. He's put the capstone on it. Shouts of grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you want a great story, a great grace story for each one of these, your women, your girls, your beloved. Lord, don't let us jeopardize the grace story with our own plot lines, with our own demands, with our own laws or rules. But Lord, let us give you the pen and let you write the story of grace in each of our lives and over each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.